that scene in Revelation where the um, everyone is gathered around the throne and it's, it talks about the Lamb upon the throne and that's the, the song of Revelation, isn't it? Holy, 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 you are worthy. And uh, Jesus alone is worthy of our praise. I want to invite you to sit down. Um, I'm going to pray in just a moment. And before I do, I wanted to just recognize a, uh, a prayer need that we kind of wanted to address this morning. In a week from now, t- uh, today in a week, um, will be the start of Spring Valley Camp. That happens every summer. And uh, if you know anything about Spring Valley Camp, you know it's kind of been a, a special time for a lot of young people and counselors. And I'd like to just have a specific prayer um, for everybody that's involved in that because by next Sunday this time, the counselors will already be over in Muscatine at the camp getting ready and then the campers are going in the, in the afternoon. And, um, and we have seen that year after year be just a, a really important week in the life of those campers and counselors. I've been involved, I'm going to be involved again this year, um, of all things teaching outdoor craft, which I'm, I told somebody I'm more intimidated by that than I would be if I was preaching. And um, so I'm kind of looking forward to that, but I'd like to just especially remember um, everybody that's involved in that in prayer. So what I'd like to do um, is have everybody that's involved in camp, whether you're a counselor, a camper, or helping with one of the the workshops or or one of the crafts or food or something like that, would you stand um, right now and and just stand to your feet and so that we can kind of acknowledge who you are and then we'd like to pray for you as we move forward. So, okay, Um, anyone else? Am I missing anybody? Okay, we've got about a half a dozen and I know there's a few I'm missing, so, okay, you can sit down. Um, If you're close to somebody that stood, if you wouldn't mind, just grab, just reach over, lay a hand on them. Um, just in kind of a symbol of care and um, and then I want to pray for them and then we'll move from that into the message let's pray Lord thank you so much for the way you've been so faithful over the years and um, and just again uh, time after time year after year um, leading in the lives of campers and counselors um, during that week of camp or there's so many so many stories that books could be written um, of how you have you've worked in different people's lives over the years there. And so, Lord, we're trusting you again. Um, I pray for each camper that, uh, that you would meet them in a special way this year and uh, they would have a fresh encounter with you. And I pray for counselors, Lord, give them wisdom, um, give them physical energy because it's extremely exhausting. And, um, and I pray that you'd be with them, be with the, each person who is part of the evening worship services, whether it's through music or speaking, whatever it is, Lord, that you would, um, that you would direct them. So, Father, thank you, and um, thank you for what you are doing. And then, Lord, as we move from here into the time of, of just opening your word, um, Lord, would you open our hearts as only you can, or teach us what we don't know, um, show us what we can't see, and, uh, and make us into what we aren't. Lord, it's only you that can do this, and, um, and we recognize the work of your spirit in all of it. Just say thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to dismiss the kids at this point. Um, kids, you're dismissed to go upstairs to your classes, and, um, and then we're going to just move right on into the message this morning. Um, yeah, thank you. If you are new here this morning, my name is Floyd. Um, welcome those who are joining us online also. And we are early in a series working our way through the book of 1 Samuel. And we, um, we're taking 
it sort of chapter by chapter, section by section, or maybe even story by story. It's a little bit difficult to break up all the stories because it's all one big story that's part of one big story. In other words, the story of Samuel is a story of a period of history in Israel's um, is it, it's a period of time in Israel's history, but it's also part of a bigger story of God relating to humanity and addressing the need of humankind and our need for a savior, for a king. So we titled this Looking for a King because the story of Samuel is sort of a transition from a time of judges to the time of kings. And, and Samuel is a key figure in that period. First to the prophets, um, last of the judges, and introduces the time of Saul and then also David and that king. And David, of course, is the picture for us of Jesus who comes as the final king. And it talks about it in several places in the New Testament that Jesus would be a king after the order of David. Um, in Hebrews, it talks about how Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. It talks about Jesus as a prophet. He is prophet, priest, and king, and ultimately judge. He's the fulfillment of all of these positions of leadership in the Old Testament. They're all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so it would be unfortunate if we went through the stories of 1 Samuel. We talked about the story of that period of time in Israel's history, if we didn't also look at King Jesus. If we weren't also doing it with an attitude or sort of a, a mindset that says we're also anticipating a final king, and because we know this king already, because we've come to know Jesus. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus, you know the king. And these stories should be those moments of reminder of our King, Jesus, and the fact that we have finally a perfect King, not one who's flawed with humanity like theirs were. You know, leadership is, is a, uh, it's an interesting little animal. Um, because it can be devastating when it's done poorly. And it can be so helpful when it's done well. And like I said a couple weeks ago, I think all of us at some points in our lives find ourselves leading somebody. And when it's done carelessly, it can have devastating effects. And when it's done carefully, it can have incredibly helpful effects. And if you read the stories of the kings through, you know, if we would keep going through First and Second Samuel and then into the Chronicles and the stories of the kings, you would read story after story of horrible leaders. If you were an Israelite a couple hundred years before the time of Christ and you start reading the history of the Israelite nation, the Jews, wouldn't you sort of read that history with this sense of longing and saying, oh God, send us a perfect king. Like, give us a good one. We're tired of broken leaders, messed up kings. 
And it's into that story that Jesus comes as the king of the world, the one who leads without flaw. So this morning we're in 1 Samuel chapter 4, and it continues that story. If you've been here the last several weeks, you know the story of how God had pronounced judgment on Eli and his sons because of the carelessness of Eli's sons, uh, Hophni and Phinehas. And these two clowns had just completely disregarded everything that was holy about God and about his temple. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we find these two characters introduced, it says, as worthless men. It says the sons of Eli were worthless men. And that's quite an indictment on a couple of guys. But here's guys who were responsible for the ministry of the temple. They were responsible to talk to God about the people and to talk to the people about God. And, but it says they were doing it so poorly that they were worthless, and God said, I'm going to judge them. In fact, God said, I'm going to kill them. And so we come into 1 Samuel chapter 4, and I want to read the first section of verses there in 1 Samuel chapter 4. I'm just going to read from verses 1 to 4, and then for the sake of time, we're going to kind of bullet point the rest of the passage and then finish up. 1 Samuel chapter 4, it says, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They camped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in a line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men in the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come, upon, come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And so we're just going to hit the pause button for just a little bit. And if you see the scene, hopefully you're able to kind of develop the scene in your mind. Because there's Israel, it says they go out against the Philistines. And the Philistines are this group of people, they were also called the sea people because they had believed that they came across the sea and sort of came into the shore of, of what we know of now as modern-day Israel and started working their way across. And they were a fierce bunch of people. They descend from uh, Noah's son, Ham, if I'm not mistaken. I should have verified that. But if I'm not mistaken, that's where they descend from. But there, is a, there are some places that, that, that track them back. Either way, they were enemies of God, and they were enemies of God's people. And so there they are, they're occupying some of the same space, and the Israelites, it says, go up against them in battle. Now, Israel was not used to losing in battle. It wasn't that they'd never lost, but they had rarely lost a battle. The reason that they hardly ever lost battles was because their God was with them. If you go back into Numbers and you read how they come out of Egypt and God directs them to build this Ark of the Covenant, and he gave them specific directions and what they were supposed to do with it, how they're supposed to build it. And he says, and my presence will dwell with you there. And it talks about in Numbers, I believe it's in chapter 9, how that they built this Ark of the Covenant and they put this in a special place in the tabernacle. And it says that a cloud descended over the Ark of the Covenant. And there was a cloud there that represented the presence of God there. And there was a fire by night and a cloud by day over that spot. And it represented God's presence there. That was for them 
and assurance that God was with them. And every time that somebody in Israel wanted to know, are we alone or is God with us? All they had to do was look at the ark and know that God is with them. And it was this very visible, physical reminder that God was among them. That the presence of God was with them. You find them going through the wilderness and they come to Canaan and God had promised them that you can have that land. In fact, he says, I'll go with you into Canaan. I'll drive out your enemies before you. And before they get into Canaan, they come to the Jordan River. And what, what happens? They need to cross the Jordan River again with several million people. And it says that they took the Ark of the Covenant and they took it. And as they entered into the river, the waters began to stop. And as they went in and they stopped in the middle of the river, and then the whole nation of Israel passes by the Ark and they go over to the other side. And it was a significant moment. And there's a lot that could be unpacked in that moment. In fact, in the New Testament, it even refers to it as a baptism. Like they were leaving the wilderness and they're going into the promised land, but it's past the presence and the, and the glory and the blessing of God that they enter into the promised land. Because the Ark of the Covenant was there symbolizing that God is among us. He's with us. It's glorious. They were the blessed people among all the nations of the world. They alone had this, the blessing of God's presence with them. And they had the Ark. But now we find them going up to battle against the Philistines and they're losing. 4,000 men suddenly dead, laying their husbands, fathers, sons. They're laying there dead. And they all look at each other and they say, something's wrong. We don't lose. We're Israel. And it specifically says that they, that they said, why has the Lord defeated us? today before the Philistines. So there's again this recognition, if we're losing, God's up to something here. God must be doing something. And there's a sense of confusion. And so somebody, and it doesn't say who it was, suggested, well, let's go get the ark. This symbol, this, this place, not just a symbol. I mean, it's the place of God's presence. It's the reminder of His blessing. Let's go get the ark, and let's bring it down to battle for us, and we'll defeat the Philistines once God is here with us. Because after all, God's stronger than the Philistines, isn't he? Isn't God stronger than his enemies? I hope you can nod your head. Yeah, okay. So we would expect that when the Ark of the Covenant comes down to the battle scene, that they're going to start winning that battle, wouldn't we? Well, they did too. And if you read the next verses, it talks about how they brought the Ark of the Covenant down, and it says when Israel, when the army of Israel realized the Ark of the Covenant was with them, they were so excited, it says they rose up with a shout, so loud that it shook the earth. The Philistines hear it, and they were incredibly fearful, and the Philistines are all looking at each other and say, oh my goodness, their God is with them. And they talk to each other and say, well, this is the God that delivered them out of Egypt, right? So these are the gods who have been with them. These are the gods who have helped defeat all the enemy before them. And the Philistines are looking at each other, and they're like, we're in rough shape because now their God is with them, because the Ark of the Covenant is with them. And if the Philistines would have been smart, at that moment, they'd have just said, you know what, fine, you win. We give. 
Yes, we have been winning this battle, but now your God is here. We give up and, we, and we'll walk away. The Philistines didn't. In fact, the Philistines look at each other and they say, we are in trouble. The term that they use twice, if you read the text, is woe to us. That means we're in trouble. In other words, if you look at somebody and they say, woe to us, you're in trouble. And that was what the Philistines were saying. They were saying, woe to us, my goodness, we're in trouble. And instead of saying, we're in trouble, we're going to go home and admit defeat, they look at each other and say, woe to us, fight harder. So they fight harder, and they, and they go back out to battle. And Israel was defeated, and not only that, the ark was captured by the Philistines. This is not how you expect the story is going to go. In fact, now, not only... 4,000 are dead. But if you go down to verse 10 in the text, it says, there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. That makes 4,000 look like nothing. Now we have 30,000 dead husbands and fathers and sons laying on a battlefield. And if that's not enough, where is God? He's with the Philistines. The presence of God has been captured. The picture's dark, isn't it? And the story goes on. It says, Eli is sitting in town. Oh, by the way, Hophni and Phinehas were killed with the 30,000 because they went out with the ark and they got killed so Eli's two sons are killed and then you read this story it says a guy by the name it doesn't give us his name it just says a guy with the tribe of Benjamin comes running down the road he's got his clothes torn he's got dust in his hair which were signs of mourning and anguish in their culture and he comes running into town and he shares the news the awful news that 30,000 of their husbands, fathers, and sons are dead, that, e that Hophni and Phinehas are dead, that Israel's been defeated, and the ark has been captured. You remember back last chapter in 1 Samuel chapter 3, when God tells this, the boy Samuel what's about to come. He tells Samuel, he says, what is about to happen to Eli and his household because of their carelessness, he says, will make the ears of the people tingle. Well, they were experiencing it that day because no one could believe how bad things had gotten. And Eli is sitting there and he says he's blind, he's old and very heavy. And then this man comes over and Eli says, he says, can you give me news? And he says, yeah, I'll give you the news. And interestingly, the narrator of 1 Samuel tells how, specifically how this man from the tribe of Benjamin gave Eli the news. He does it in progression of, of least worst to the worst. In other words, he starts and he says, Israel has been slaughtered. That's not the worst news. He says, we have been defeated. That's not the worst news. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. Well, it's getting worse, but that's still not the worst news. Oh, and the Ark of the Covenant's been captured. 
and the Philistines have it now. The thing that they built their entire identity on, God's presence among them, is now in the hands of the Philistine. That's the worst news. Eli, it says, was so overcome, he falls over backwards, breaks his neck, and he dies. And the story's still not over. Because Phineas's wife goes into labor. This is Eli's daughter-in-law. She's carrying a child, and the, the news of what's happening right now is so dramatic and earth-shaking that it forces her into an early labor. And she goes into labor and gives birth to a son. And the ladies who are attending her at that point are encouraging her, and they're saying, you've had a son. Now, in their culture, this should be good news to any woman that she gave birth to a son. That was like an honorable thing for them. And it says that she was just, she didn't even pay attention to them. She couldn't be consoled. And it says that she died, but right before she dies, in verse 21, it says, and we're going to pick it up there, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband, because of her father-in-law and her husband, and she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. And that raises the question, how did this happen? How did that happen? That's quite a story, isn't it? The story of incredible defeat, surprising defeat, where you think the story is going to turn and it's going to go well for Israel. It doesn't. It gets worse. And then it gets worse. And then it gets worse. And the stories like this in our Bible don't fit well with our happy, clappy Christianity. You know, that, oh, God is always... He's on the throne. He's victorious. Bad things never happen to God's people. We never go through any dark times. This is all, you know, fun and games and just get on the Jesus train because it's going to heaven and it'll be a great ride to get there. And then you come across stories like this and it's like, oh, what, how does this happen? How is it that God's chosen people would experience times of difficulty and darkness to this degree? Even to the point of God allowing His very presence to depart. Now, God is omnipresent, by the way. Like, Scripture teaches that God is everywhere. Psalmist David talks about there is nowhere that we can go to remove ourselves from God's presence. But there is this thing that we call the manifest presence of God. In other words, it's when God lets his presence be known to a group of people. And he makes it known in a particular way. And in their context, he was, in their context, he was manifesting his presence through the Ark of the Covenant. 
That's how he was making it known to them that I am with you, that I'm here. And it wasn't as though God's presence was only at the ark. It was that they knew it was manifest at the ark. Do you know that God still manifests his presence? That there are times in our lives where we look at each other and we say, well, God is here. Or there's times when we notice change happening in somebody's life and we say, well, God is really with them. God must be near them. God's really blessing them. And there's times when, when things are happening in our personal lives or in the life of a church or a group of people or even in a nation where we say, wow, God is at work. God is there. God is manifesting his presence. He is making known what is already a reality even in ways that are dramatic and change people's lives. But then there's also the times where there's a sense of aloneness and a sense of what has happened. I remember the good old days. And for many of these people, they could remember a time when the ark had had the cloud over it or they could at least remember when their parents or their grandfathers talked about how God's presence was with them and he manifested it in a certain way. And it was amazing to be a part of that group of people. But if you remember the period of Judges right before this time, it closes that period with this statement, and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Like something is going on. How did it happen that the Ark of the Covenant is captured and is now in the hands of the Philistine? And is this the end of the story? The good news it's not, is that it's not. But it's the end of our text for today. And there's some lessons that we need to learn from this story before we rush any further. And it's lessons about God's presence manifest amongst His people. How God dwells and He deals with His children and with His people now. Because... If you are familiar with the Bible, you know that there's a transition point where Jesus comes as the promise of all of the promises of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. There's this promise that's looking forward to the Messiah, to Jesus coming, that He will one day come, and that He will be the perfect sacrifice for sins. And so we won't need to offer an animal sacrifice anymore that Jesus will be the perfect sacrifice for sin. And he does come. And you begin to read about him in the book of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. You read in those Gospels the story of Jesus, how he comes to earth, fully God, fully human. And he comes and he fulfills all the promises of the Old Testament so that they didn't need to offer an animal sacrifice anymore. But the promise is not just for the forgiveness of sins. The promise is also that, that God is going to meet everyone wherever they are, regardless of their nationality. And he makes this promise to Abraham. He says, Abraham, in you will all the nations of the world be blessed. And that there will be a point where God will dwell with people, not in a building made with hands, but that he will live in people. He will be with people. That his presence will be in people. Last Sunday we celebrated Pentecost, which is this event described in Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit comes as a fulfillment of the promise. He talks about, in, in, Peter stood up that day and he says, you, were, you are seeing the fulfillment of all these promises. The promise of Joel where he says, in the last days he says, I will pour out my spirit. And he says, my sons and daughters will see and dream dreams and see visions. 
And this is what Pentecost was all about, was the coming of the Holy Spirit, where God dwells in his people, where we are now the temple of God in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. That's what's described in the book of Hebrews for us, and in Rome and several other places, where where it's described that we are now the temple of the living God. That's why there's nothing sacred about buildings anymore. See, there's nothing sacred about this particular building here. When we started this church, we were meeting in a school, setting up chairs. There wasn't anything sacred about that building. Because we don't have physical temples anymore. Paul told the Corinthian church, he says, you are the temple of the living God. His presence dwells within you. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in his children is the fulfillment of this promise. So the lessons about God's presence in the Old Testament, and in these narrative stories, if all they are is just, well, you should try harder, we're missing the point. There's a gospel connection to this story. And the connection is that there are lessons that are taught in this story that we need to learn about God's manifest presence in our lives and in our churches. That God's presence still dwells in us. That He's still at work in us. And that some of the lessons that they learned As this story unfolds, there are lessons that we ought to learn also. Lesson number one, God's presence is not secondary. If you go back and you read the story of Eli and Hophni Hophni and Phinehas, it is that they had become consumed with their appetite and and the presence of God was secondary, maybe not even that high for them. God's presence ought to be primary, not secondary. And you're like, okay, I can go along with that. Well, here's the, the problem. Is that life happens. And we get consumed with everything else except God. Kids have sporting events. Um, work is very demanding. Life is stressful. We're out of money. We're we're low on money, high on bills. Any number of scenarios can come and can distract us from the primary thing in our lives, and that is the presence of God at work in our lives. I have a friend who says, the enemy doesn't really need to discourage us as long as he can distract us. As long as he can get our attention somewhere else, worried about all the things around us. We were praying together as a group of us praying this morning. Somebody reminded us that, you know, that God sees even when the sparrow falls. He, Jesus said it in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, God sees even the sparrow falls. And we're so worried about whether God will take care of us or not. And we make ourselves the primary thing and not God's presence. God's presence is not secondary. It is primary. Secondly, God's presence is not blind. That's the word that the man of God brings to Eli, and then God also brings to Samuel. He's like, I haven't been blind all this time. Now, if you had been living during that season of time, and you would go to the temple, and 1 Samuel chapter 2 describes those events, those times when somebody would show up at the temple with their sacrifice, and they would say, I brought this meat, I wanted to give this. And the, and the command of God was that you give the best to God because God is holy and because He deserves the best. And so they would come and they would say, I want to bring the best. I want to bring the fat of the meat, which was considered the best. 
And these two clowns, Hophni and Phinehas, would come, and they would say, oh, no, 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 we want to stick our fork in the meat, we want to take the fat away, because that's the best part of the meat. We want the ribeye. Give God the, the, you know, the, the bony part, the shank, or whatever, you know? Like, that was their theory. Like, we deserve the best, we'll give God what's secondary, and, if, and these poor people who would come to the temple with their sacrifices, wanting to sacrifice the best to God, wound up having their best taken away by the people who were supposed to represent God from them, and there was a sense of failure and brokenness at the place where there was supposed to be wholeness and healing in the temple. And if you would walk away from that, wouldn't you say, I wonder if God notices what's going on here in his temple. I wonder if God is paying attention. And in case they were wondering, God was not blind. When God waits to set things right, it should never be interpreted as blindness. If you look around and you see a lot of injustice and a lot of problems in our world and you say, I don't understand why this is going on. I don't understand why somebody was treating me the way they were or why people acted the way. I don't even understand why people who called themselves Christians acted the way they acted. And I wish God would just set it right and take care of it. I promise you, he sees. And his slowness to act should never be interpreted as his blindness. He always sees. He sees everything. Thirdly, God's presence doesn't work for us. He's not there to serve us. The presence of God's Spirit is not there here to make us look good. Man, this gets messed up, doesn't it? I remember a number of years ago, you know, I started, I was preaching. I'd been preaching for about six years, six, seven years. And I started really praying, Lord, I, I, want, I want the Holy Spirit to anoint my preaching. I'm like, that's, that's a good prayer, right? Like, God, bless my preaching. God, I want, I want people to know that the Holy Spirit is at work in my preaching. And I'd pray, and nothing changed. And I'd keep praying, and nothing would change. Until I began to realize that what I really wanted was I wanted people to talk about how good of a preacher I was and I needed God's Spirit to help me do that. And God wasn't interested in that at all. He's not interested in that. Like us going to God and saying, God, make me look amazing. Make me look good. Make our church look good. God's saying, oh, that's not what it's about. That's not the point. And all of the language that gets thrown around Christianity about the Holy Spirit, songs that we sing, I, I cannot help but wonder many, many times, are we really wanting God to work for us? Or are we offering ourselves to Him? Because that was the posture of those Israelites as they go get the Ark of the Covenant. Is it's like, let's go get God and He'll help us win our battle that we started to fight. We need God to work for us. 
And they discovered the hard way that it doesn't work like that. We're not superior to God. We're not forcing him into serving us. And all of this argument over, well, should we do high church with the stained glass windows and you know the, the liturgy and the readings, reminding people of the holiness of God? Or do we do church where it's like, no, let's, let's keep it very active and busy and noisy so that everyone feels very comfortable here? Or, you know, the, the very seeker-sensitive model, because that's what brings the presence of God. And we'll sing our songs. And when we sing the songs, we'll dim the lights, and we'll put a little fog in the air, and we'll sing just the right song. And it's almost like the Holy Spirit's in the ductwork somewhere, just waiting for the right environment. And he shows up, and everybody's like, ooh, God's here. What is that? It's that thing of manipulating God to work for us. Like, well, he's supposed to come serve us. Where in the New Testament, where in the Bible, anywhere, you find that the Holy Spirit's somewhere sitting on the fringes just waiting for the right environment to come into the room. He's not. He indwells the life of the believer. He is with us. And, and as you read the stories of the book of Acts, these people who are encountering the Holy Spirit, they weren't asking for the Holy Spirit to join them in their efforts. They were surrendering themselves to the Holy Spirit. And then it says, several times in the book of Acts, it says, then the Holy Spirit would fill them. That's different, isn't it? That's different than falling in a room. It's like he filled them. That's a different model than we're almost accustomed to. We're like, oh, we need him in the atmosphere. No, we need him to fill us, to empty us of ourselves and fill us with him because we're so narcissistic and self-centered and we've got our own agenda and we want God to just get on with our agenda. Join us in our work. Fill us so that we become healthy, wealthy, and wise. And there isn't enough difference between that mentality and what the Israelites were trying to do with the Ark of the Covenant to even talk about. He isn't there to serve us. We come to serve him. Lastly, God's presence is never insecure. Listen, if it was my presence, I would never allow the representation of my manifest presence to get taken up by the hands of the Philistines. I'd be like, boy, that just sends all the wrong messages to people. Like, I don't want to. I don't want to let that happen. Like, we'll deal with these people and their carelessness and all of the apathy and all of this stuff and the priority. We'll deal with that in a separate issue. But there's no way the Ark of the Covenant is falling into the hands of the enemy. Like, I don't want to allow anybody to look around and say, well, it looks like the enemies of God are stronger than God. Listen, God's never insecure at all. God is never insecure. Even at times when it looks to us like wrong is winning and right is losing, when it looks like we live in a world who has flipped it upside down and right is wrong and wrong is right, and it doesn't seem like God's doing anything about it, I promise you, God is not sitting in heaven wringing his hands saying, I don't know if I'm going to be able to, just, to set this right. 
You know, 2 Peter says he's patient. Not willing that anyone should perish. But his patience should never be considered as weakness. God's not insecure at all. He's not freaked out by what's happening in your life or in my life or in our churches or in our nation or anywhere else. He is not insecure. He is fully capable of doing whatever he sets his mind to do. We're insecure. He's not. And so, there is this dark moment toward the end of that story where Phineas's wife is giving birth to that child. Can you imagine, let's just think a little bit about this lady who is unnamed in the, in the text, by the way. The narrator doesn't give us her name. But let's think about her a little bit. She has watched her husband and his brother defile everything that was holy and precious in Israel. She's watched the carelessness. She's heard what the man of God says. Oh, and if that's not enough, remember what it said in chapter 2 about these guys that they were up to? It says they were laying with the daughters who would come to the temple. That means that they were forcing themselves sexually on women within the temple. They were sexual predators and abusers. And everybody knew it, including Phineas's wife. Now, it's one thing to know that. Another thing to be married to that. That's Phineas's wife's experience. And evidently, her and Phineas were still sharing a bed because she was pregnant. And she's going to give birth. This lady has not had an easy life by anybody's measurements. But it all sort of culminates to this moment where this lady is in labor and she feels her life slipping away from her. Her husband's dead. <clears throat> her brother-in-law is dead and her father-in-law is dead. And that's not even what she's focused on. She says, where is God? That's her question. Where is God? Where is God? She says, the glory has departed. And the last thing she does is name her son, the glory has gone, the glory is gone, Ichabod. Where is God in the dark moment? And if you've lived life long enough, you've probably had some moments where you felt a little bit like Phineas' wife, where things were difficult, painful. And you just wanted God to ride in on a white horse and to take care of it and make all of it go away. And it raised a question like, where is God? Is he watching? Does he see what's going on? Now, thankfully the story doesn't end here. You're going to have to come back next Sunday to hear the rest of the story. And the Sunday after that, by the way. So two Sundays. Um, so you're in this thing for three weeks. But, but that's not really the end of the story, is it? We don't even know where the Ark of the Covenant is today. No one actually knows, in spite of the you know, old wives 
fables floating around the internet, um, we don't actually know. And it's actually not that important. Um, it is not the box that matters. It's God's presence that matters. And in spite of the fact that there are moments where you and I can find ourselves feeling alone, maybe through our own choices, sometimes through our own choices, like these guys, maybe like the, some other people, like Phineas's wife, through no choices of her own, like she didn't choose this predicament she's in. None of these choices were her own, but she still finds herself in a moment of pain and darkness. Saying, where is God in this? We're looking for some good news, aren't we? And some of you are sitting here like, man, I picked a, I picked a rough Sunday to be here because this has been a dark passage. Well, it kind of is. And if we end here, we probably haven't done a service because these kinds of stories are supposed to build a sense of longing in us for God's presence and for him to come and to be with us. My sermon in a sentence this morning, the presence of God's Holy Spirit is precious and should be given priority in our lives and churches. But I really wanted to show you this text out of Matthew chapter 28, the last part of verse 20. Now, what Jesus has said before this, these are Jesus' last words to his disciples, and he says, he says, go. So there's kind of a directive, there's a command. He says, go into all the world and teach them about, my, about me. He says, go tell everybody the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what he said right before this. So they're like, okay, all right, we got it. We have our commission. We have the commission. We're supposed to go, right? And then he says these words to them, and I think these words need to settle in because this is consistent with the rest of the with the rest of the teaching of Scripture. And he says, and behold, so he says, pay attention. Look, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's good news. That's the good news this morning, and I, that's what I want to close with this morning is a word of hope and good news that Jesus promises that for those of us who have placed our faith in Him, who have trusted Him for the forgiveness of our sins and to, to direct and to be the, the Lord of our lives, to be our King, He says, I will go with you and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He says, in other words, I will be with my children even to the point that there is no more earth anymore. Even to the end of time. He's like, I will never not be with you. And I love the fact that he uses the word behold at the beginning of this because he's, he's sort of, it's that word that wants to kind of grab you by the shirt collar and say, pay attention to this. Listen to this. You're not alone. You are not alone. Jesus is with you. What do you have going on in your life right now? There's all kinds of things, isn't there? On a national level, personal level, emotional level, all of the stuff and the garbage that goes on in our lives and the times when we wonder, God, where are you? Times that we may be like those people who it's because of our own stupid, foolish choices that we can't sense God's presence anymore, or it might be because of other people's foolish choices, or we just don't know why, but we can't sense the presence of God anymore, and we're asking this question that Phineas's wife is asking, God, where are you? And isn't it good to know that we can go back to His Word, and we find His promise 
He says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Nowhere in here does he say, I am with you when you feel I'm with you. Do you notice that? He doesn't say, I'm with you when you notice I'm with you. He just says, I'm with you. You're not alone. You are not alone. You don't get anything else out of that this morning. You are not alone. And I want you to leave this morning with that ringing in your heart, in your ears. You are not alone. God is with you. You are not living Ichabod, where the glory has departed. You may be here this morning and say, man, I haven't felt God for months. Maybe I'm the one exception. God's not with me. He doesn't base it on the feelings, does he? I love it when I feel God's presence close. Those are great moments. But the times when I don't, doesn't change the reality of his promise. It doesn't make God any less God when he says he'll be with us. You are not alone. God is with you. Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, because it's not based on our goodness, it's based on his, you are not alone. Because he has fulfilled all of his promises, you are not alone. Because of the coming of the Holy Spirit dwelling in the life of his believer, you are not alone. Because he has a plan for your life and a place that he wants you to go, a person he wants you to be, you're not alone. Because he's promised that he's coming again, you're not alone. Because he loves you, you are not alone. You're not alone. We're not living in Ichabod. And the reality of that on a personal level will always translate out to a church level. If a group of people meet to go through the motions of worship together with a sense of distance from God in their personal lives, they will feel the distance of God in their corporate worship together. If a group of people meet with a sense of closeness to the presence of God in their personal lives, they will feel the presence of the personal God in their corporate worship together. It just goes that way. I am sobered to be reminded of this unfortunate reality, and that is that it is very possible for people to become callous and careless, apathetic and cynical, to the point that they move away from God's direction and leading in their lives and become enamored with their own agendas and not with God's. And that the places where they once sensed the presence of God as they met together to worship, they only sense pain and frustration. I think it was Alistair Begg that told his people one day, he says, we're just one generation from this becoming a building where they sell furniture out of. Like, I've thought about that a lot. Because what's a passion for one person can become a duty for the next generation and can become an inconvenience for the next generation. A faith that is personal and real can become duty and can become inconvenience 
and the carelessness. Like those are lessons we need to learn. But the good news and the promise is that as we walk with Jesus, that he is with us, that we are not alone, and that doesn't have to be our story. Amber, if you guys want to go ahead and come on up, I want to close here. Quickly, if you want to take, go into deeper study, there's several questions there. What grieves the Holy Spirit? It's worth doing a study. The Bible talks about things that do grieve the Holy Spirit that make him sad. He's not like this mystical presence. The scripture actually refers to him as the third person of the Trinity. He is real, an entity. What are the reliable indicators of God's manifest presence and have you been filled with God's spirit? Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for this story, even though it, it has a sense of, of darkness, but God, thank you that there is hope and that we know um, and we, we trust that your spirit is with us, that your presence is with us and that we are not alone. God, thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you for the, the presence of the Holy Spirit and working inside of us and doing in us what we could never do for ourselves. Thank you, God, that you continue to change us, that you continue to make us different and new day by day. You don't leave us the same way you found us. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who may be sensing, who, who may feel like, like you're not with them. And Lord, would you, um, would you just somehow speak to their heart this morning and remind them that they are not alone, that you are with them that you see what they're going through, that you feel the, the pain that they feel, and that you died for that pain to deliver them, Lord. God, thank you for the promise that you, we are not alone and that you will be with us. Encourage us with that this morning. And help us to be an encouragement to others. Thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.